This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now. As you yes. Can. Thank you, God. <clears throat> Amen. What a powerful statement of the gospel that song is. And our family is so thankful for the promises of the gospel. And many of you know my wife, Melissa's mom, Mary, uh, passed away in the, the wee hours of uh, Tuesday morning of this past week. And it's been a, it's been a hard, hard week. Wilson said earlier, some of you had hard weeks. We had a hard week. But all of that hardness and grief takes place against the background of what we just sang about. We have a risen Savior who has defeated death for all who trust in him. And Melissa's mom, Mary, knew the Lord. She's with the Lord uh, now, and we have the Holy Spirit uh, to help us in times like this. But um, continue to pray for our family, pray for Melissa, pray for our three children, Caleb, Courtney, Cassidy, who were extraordinarily close to uh, their grandmother, um, and just, just lift them uh, to the Lord, if you would. We are so thankful for the love that we have felt from our church family this week, the many, many expressions of love uh, and concern from, from you guys, and uh, it just means so much. So we're going to talk about love today. Um, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're talking about the fact that the goal is love. That's what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 1, 5. So last week, we started a new series in the book of 1 Timothy, and we're calling this series, Fight the Good Fight. And uh, that is an expression that Paul tells Timothy multiple times in First and Second Timothy, fight the good fight. Um, and it's not just words for Timothy, it's words for us too, because we, we talked about last week, the Christian life in a way is a fight, right? There's the, the, the world that seeks to pull us away from God and we're to, to fight to keep from being conformed to the pattern of this world. There, there's our own flesh, our own sinful nature that we've got to deal with. And so there's a fight with the, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have a supernatural enemy that seeks to destroy us and devour us. And against that background, Paul says, fight the good fight. That's the message of 1 Timothy. And so uh, we're looking this morning at chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses uh, 5 through 11. And the title of the message comes from something that Paul says in verse 5, the goal is love. Let's pick it up there in verse 5. He says, now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. But we know that the law is good 
provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law was not meant for the righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who killed their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the gospel of the, of the glory of the blessed God, the gospel that reveals your glory, your intrinsic majesty and, and who you are. And so, Lord, all of your attributes, all of your, all of your glorious, majestic attributes from your holiness, your righteousness, your compassion, your tender mercies, all of those things come together at the cross and the resurrection. We, we see your glory in the gospel. And Lord, it's, it's, your, it's, your, it's your gospel that ultimately shows your love for sinners like us. And it's, your, it's that gospel that produces love in us. And so, Lord, the goal is love. Love for you, love for others. Would you produce more of that in us as we see more and more of who you are in the glory of the gospel? And we pray that we would see that today in your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So in, in May of 1983, um, God just did a beautiful thing in my life and really igniting my life for Christ. And uh, those were some of the most joyful days of my life, uh, you know, just g getting really involved here with our student ministry and Trudy and that, that whole, whole gang of, uh, of, of teenagers uh, at that point just became like a real family and, and God just, just, just it's like life had begun anew and, and uh, was beginning just to pour into the scriptures and read the Bible on my, my own uh, for the first time, not because my parents wanted me to, because I wanted to, and, 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 and those were just joyful days, those early days of walking with the Lord. And about a year into seeking to walk closely uh, with Christ, I went through a more difficult time, and it had to do with the fact that as a conscientious Christian, I was becoming more and more um, sensitive to my sin and more and more conscious of the fact, you know, that I'm, I'm falling short in so many ways of God's perfect standard, God's law. And what I needed was to understand more of the gospel. I needed to understand at that point that, you know, God loved and accepted me not based on my righteousness, which is always going to fall short, but based on the perfect righteousness of Christ. I, I, needed, I needed a fuller understanding of the gospel. And I really struggled with some of those issues for several years until the summer of 1990 when I just dove deep into the book of Romans. 
And, uh, and it, was, it was really that study of Romans that just kind of um, gave me that fuller understanding of the gospel so that I could see kind of how, you know, law and gospel re- relate and that, that kind of thing. And of course, I was not the first person to struggle with these issues. You know, Martin Luther in the 16th century. This is really kind of at the, the core of his struggles and it's what led to the Reformation, the struggle between law and gospel. And that, those, those struggles go back beyond the 16th century back to the first century, which is when Paul is writing 1 Timothy and helping people to, to wrestle with this and understand um, th- there was a misuse of the law and he wanted them to understand the beauty of the gospel. That's kind of what we're seeing in this text. And in the process of all of that, what we see is this beautiful expression of how God's love is seen in the gospel. So the goal is love. So what do we see in this text? First of all, let's talk about the springs of love. And we see that in verse Five. Let's look at verse five together. He says, now the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So when he says here in verse five, the goal of our instruction, what instruction is he talking about? He's talking about what he just said that we looked at last week in verses three and four. So let's look at verses three and four. He says, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. These promote empty speculations rather than God's plan which operates by faith. So we talked about it last week. There is big time trouble in the church at Ephesus. False teachers were in that church and it was tearing the church apart and undermining the faith of believers. So Paul has sent Timothy to Ephesus to command the false teachers to stop and to help this broken church toward healing and wholeness in the gospel. And as we talked about last week, This letter is a letter to Timothy, but it's clear that it's meant to be read to the whole church. And so when you read verse five, it makes a lot more sense when you understand that this is not a private letter just to Timothy. It's it's going to be read to the whole church there. And so when Paul says this, the goal of our instruction is love, he, he, he's getting the message across to this church. Listen, we're telling you this because we love you. I, I have sent Timothy to be with you and I'm writing this letter because we love you and we want you to get back to loving one another. And then in verse five, he talks about um, some, of the, some of the things um, that, that love comes from, right? Some of the, the springs of love. He says the goal of our instruction is love that comes from what? A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere 
faith. So let's look at those one by one. First of all, love comes from a pure heart. Now remember, Paul is steeped in the Old Testament. And so when he thinks about a pure heart, without a doubt, verses like Psalm 24 and verses three and four would have been in his mind. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in this holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. He would have been thinking about what David says in Psalm 51 and verse 10. David prays, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, the hearts of these false teachers in Ephesus were anything but pure, as we'll see as we go through the letter. And it is such a challenge today to maintain a pure heart. You know, one of the, one of the words that Paul uses here in, in verse 10, he talks about a sexual immorality here. The Greek word there is pornois. It's where we get the modern word pornography. And we live in such a, a pornographic culture today where it's it just a, you know, it, it's not a matter of going out and buying this stuff anymore. It's a matter of clicking a button and, 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 and placarded before you will be something that will pollute your heart. It will pollute your heart and it will destroy your love for God and for others. Lust clouds your vision of who God is and it corrupts the way that you view other people because you're reducing other people who are created in the image of God to the level of objects. That's gross. And it is such a challenge in our, our, our day to maintain a pure heart. But Christian, fight the good fight. Fight. Fight to have a pure mind and a pure heart. And look at the reward for that. Matthew 5 and verse 8. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. There was an article that appeared, it was been a couple of decades now, I guess, but it was, uh, it was in the Leadership Magazine, but it was by, a, it was by an, an anonymous, uh, comp he, he described himself kind of as a, a, a conference speaker, or a, a kind of, a, I guess, a, a well-known uh, Christian, prominent Christian leader. And, and this, this guy went into this article and, and just kind of detailed how there was a whole, he, there, he was living like this hidden life for years, whereas, you know, behind the scenes, he's being engulfed by lust. And he talked about kind of the road to victory, and it was Matthew 5, 8 that the Lord used more than any other verse. And one of the things that he said in this article was this. He said, here was a, a description of what I was missing by continuing to harbor lust. 
I was limiting my own intimacy with God. So love for him and love for others springs from a pure heart. Second, a good conscience. A good conscience. Paul says the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience. Now the word good here can be translated as clear, a clear conscience. We, we talk so little about the conscience these days. You know, in previous generations, Christians talked a lot about the conscience. The Puritans talked about the conscience all the time, but more importantly, the Bible talks so much about the conscience. The, the conscience is mentioned more than a dozen times in Paul's letters alone. And yet we seem to talk so little about the conscience these days. Kevin DeYoung has written a, a, a good little book about uh, having a clear conscience. You could read this in an hour or two. Um, it's called, the, it's called the, the Art of, of Turning. It's talking about how, the, the path to a clear conscience. But, but DeYoung um, defines the conscience this way. The conscience is the moral faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad. William Mounts, who has written an incredible commentary on First and Second Timothy, uh, Mounts defines the conscience this way. Defines conscience this way: it is the in, that innate and universal knowledge that condemns wrong and commends right. It is the inner awareness of the moral quality of one's actions. So listen, every human being has a conscience. That's part of being created in the image of God. Every human being has a conscience, but your conscience is not static. Your conscience is either being sanctified by the Spirit or seared by sin. I want us to turn um, a few pages over to, um, to chapter 4 and verses 1 and 2. Paul's talking here about the false teachers in Ephesus, and he says this. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. What does it mean to have a seared conscience? If you were to walk out outside in, in a deep freeze, deep freezing temperatures, and uh, there was no covering on your hands. Your hands were just completely exposed to that, that freezing weather. After a while, your fingers would start to hurt, which is bad. But here's what's incredibly worse, when they stop hurting. Because when they stop hurting, 
What that means is that frostbite has set in. It means that the, the nerve endings of your fingers are being dulled and permanently damaged, and you may lose them altogether. A seared conscience is spiritual frostbite. A seared conscience happens when you push away the pangs of your conscience and you do it again and again and again. You push it away, you you suppress it. You suppress what your conscience is telling you. You put it off, put it down. And when you do that enough, then what's bad starts to not feel so bad anymore. And eventually, and this is the, the final stage, eventually what happens is that you can convince yourself that what is wrong is right. And that what is right is wrong. Now that is an awful state to be in spiritually. A seared conscience. So what does a good conscience look like? That's what he's talking about here in verse five. A good conscience, a a clear conscience. Paul Paul says in Acts 24, 16, he says, "I, I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. Okay, but how do we strive to have a clear conscience, a good conscience? Simply put, we turn. We turn. We, first of all, turn from sin. That means that instead of grieving the Holy Spirit and pushing away the pangs of conscience, we deal with the sin that is producing those pangs of conscience. And we turn from it, we repent. And we turn from sin and we turn to Christ the gospel. There's a beautiful picture of this in John Bunyan's classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, in which the lead character, Christian, who represents every Christian, is carrying this load of the knowledge, this load on his back, and that that burden that he's carrying is the knowledge of sin and guilt. And then Christian takes that burden and he unloads it at the foot of the cross. Right, We turn from sin, we turn to Christ. A good conscience. Third, a sincere faith. A sincere faith. The word sincere here means without hypocrisy. The false teachers uh, were certainly not that. They had ulterior motives. We turn to chapter six, turn to chapter six and verse five. He tells us about that. He says that at the end of verse five there that they, they view godliness as a way to material gain. So these false teachers, like many false teachers today, were after money. I think about like the health and wealth, prosperity 
uh, gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Some of the charlatans that circulate in evangelical circles uh, to, today with this false gospel, this health and wealth gospel, um, you know, and that was, that's not new. You know, that was the case here in the first century. Um, they, were, they, were after, they were after money. They were consumed with a love for money. If you look at chapter 6 and verse 10, he says there, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What do you love? Jesus or money? Jesus says you can't love both. It's impossible. Jesus says you can't love God and money. What do you love? Jesus or money? And the answer to that question is not to be found in your words, but in your actions. Are you willing to give up money? <laughs> because of your love for Jesus and your love for his church and his, the advance of his cause and his kingdom in this world? And does that flow from a, from a sincere faith because you trust the Lord to provide for you, right? A sincere faith produces love. Love flows from it. Jesus says in John 7 and verse 38, the one who believes in me as the scripture has said, we'll have streams of living water flow from deep within him. So listen, it begins with trusting. Trusting God in every area of life. And when we begin to trust him, that's a sincere faith, then the result of that is love. Love that gives, not only of finances, but time and energy. You, love, you find yourself loving people Loving people that are, you know, way different from you. Loving people that are more difficult to love. That's what sincere faith produces love for God and love for others. It flows from that, a sincere faith. That's the springs of love. Okay, now let's talk about the departure from love. And we see that in verses six and seven. He says in verse six, some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. He's talking about these false teachers in Ephesus. The, he says they, they have turned aside from these, the stuff in verse five. Love, coming from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. They've departed from these. They've turned aside from these. The ESV says they've swerved from these. These guys have taken a a wrong turn and they have turned from these things to what fruitless discussion vain empty discussion senseless babble there's a lot of senseless babble in our day <laughs> and there are many people who have turned aside to it including many people who should know better I mean, we are bombarded in our world, I mean, from you know, every kind of, of media by so much vain, empty discussion, fruitless discussion, senseless babble, and people just wasting 
hours and days and ultimately their lives in this stuff. Listen, friends, we've not only got a stewardship of, our, of money, we've got a stewardship of time. And just like our money is not ours, God gave it to us. Our time is not ours. It's not yours. God gave it to you. We don't have the right to waste his time. You know, and, and senseless babble. And, and you know, we're, we're called to live our lives fruitfully, right? If you're going to dig into something, dig into God's word. Roll up in his work and the advance of his kingdom in this world. Waste with a bunch of vain discussion, senseless babble. But that's what was happening there. And then he says in verse seven, he says they wanna be teachers of the law, although they don't understand what they are saying or what they are insisting on. Now Paul, who really was trained as a teacher of the law, knew one when he saw one, and these guys weren't it. In fact, they were profoundly ignorant of God's law, but it wasn't an innocent ignorance that wanted to learn more. It was a malicious ignorance that was destroying this church. Turn again to chapter six, and let's pick it up here, verse three. He says, if anyone teaches false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. You know, these guys are just wreaking havoc in this church. They've departed from the gospel and the way of love, and they're corrupting lots of people in the church who are also turning away from love, departing from love. They needed to get back to the gospel, and that's the third thing, the gospel of love. Let's look at verse 8. So he says, but we know that the law is good provided one uses it legitimately. Now, behind this, reading between the lines, is probably the fact that these false teachers were telling people, hey, Paul, he doesn't care about the law. He doesn't care about God's law. He doesn't think God's law is any good. And Paul's response here is, oh, quite to the contrary. <laughs> God's law is good, provided that it's used for its intended purpose. And what is the purpose of God's law? You know, Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The purpose of God's law is to reveal to us what sin is. It shows us what sin is, which we need. Look at the beginning of verse nine. He says, we know that the law 
is not meant for the righteous person. (laughs) Now, this is the case today. Uh, Maybe you've become frustrated over the past few years when you go to the store, you know, and you buy, like, you know, household items or whatever, and uh, have you noticed, like, there's just more and more layers of packaging around them? I mean, like, you've got to have a good set of scissors or a, a knife like to get into so much stuff that you that you that you buy today it's like layers of you know of plastic and these plastic ties that are just kind of all over I'm always afraid I'm gonna like cut and mess up you know the thing that I bought just trying to get into it guess what <laughs> that packaging is not for you <laughs> if you're an honest person <laughs> it's not there for you it's there for people who are engaged in, in, in stealing and shoplifting, right? And so that's, there's a sense here in which the law is not for the spirit-filled Christian who has been catapulted into a new realm where they love God and love others from the heart and yearn to obey him. So for instance, in Galatians 5 and verses 22 and 23, Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he says, against such things, there is no law. If if you are a Spirit-filled Christian, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, then you are fulfilling the law from your heart. Loving God, loving other people, right? That's the heart of the law. Jesus said, all of the law, right, hangs on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law depends on these two commandments, right? We see it here in the fruit of the Spirit. So, like, if you're this type of person, right, you're you've been catapulted into a realm where your, your life is filled with love for God, love for others. You yearn to obey him from your, 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 your heart, right? The, you live in a, you're living in a different realm than people who are under, under the law, right? And just are gritting their teeth and trying to obey rules because like, I gotta do this. So he's saying here that the law ultimately is not meant for the, the righteous person, but for, but for who? And then, beginning in the latter part of verse 9 and through verse 10, he gives a whole list of things, right? Um, we know that the law was not meant for the righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent. Now, This would not be apparent on the surface, okay? But what Paul is doing in verses 9 and 10 is he's giving a reflection on the Ten Commandments. So these first three couplets that we see, um, the lawless and rebellious, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreverent, these are reflections on the first part, the first half of the Ten Commandments. And then... The other stuff in the list here comes from the second part of the Ten Commandments, right? For those who 
kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral males who have sex with males, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, right? This is coming, these are really reflections on the, the back half of the Ten Commandments. Now, I want us to look at a couple of these because, and I want to relate it to something that we talked about earlier with the conscience. I want to show you how easy it is to play games with our conscience um, and to push away, to push away the pangs of conscience and push away God's word and to screen out certain parts of God's word that we don't want to deal with. He talks here um, about homosexuality, which is not unique to 1 Timothy. Um, talks about it in 1 Corinthians 6. Talks about it at length in Romans 1. Um, this was a culture in fir- the first century Greco-Roman world where homosexuality was incredibly uh, common. Um, many of the early believers had come out of that lifestyle tells us that in 1 Corinthians 6. Um, And so, you know, he talks about that in all of these places, homosexuality as sin, clearly. But notice here that he doesn't limit it, doesn't limit sexual sin to homosexuality. No, He, he says here in verse 10, when he talks about the sexually immoral, that is an all encompassing term. That's talking about sexual sin in all its forms. And and let there be no doubt what the Bible teaches about that. (laughs) The Bible teaches that any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin. Now you say, well, pastor, that really doesn't equate with our modern world. Guess what? It didn't equate with the first century world in which this was written in. These early believers were were coming out of a world, Gentiles especially, in which it was a very much an anything goes culture sexually. One of the distinguishing marks of the early Christians was their devotion to sexual purity and fidelity within marriage. Now, you know, either you are going to accept biblical authority on this, or you are going to say, I am gonna be my own authority. That's what it comes down to. But if you say, I'm gonna be my own authority, do not claim to be following Jesus. Because to follow Jesus means Jesus is Lord. And that means he's Lord of every area of life including our sex life. I want us to look at the, he talks about slave traders here <clears throat> as well. Um, the Greek word here could even be translated as kidnappers. It's talking about, st- it's a reflection on the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. And, 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 and clearly Paul is seeing here slavery, which again was rampant in his day part of first century culture in the Greco-Roman world, it's really clear how Paul feels about slavery. He thinks the whole system is rotten. Rotten. 
because it's, he says it's like, it's like stealing. It's, steal, it's stealing human beings. It's people stealing. You say, well, I mean, how could Christians ever support this? How, how, could, how could a Christian ever support, you know, if we believe that human beings are created in the image of God, how could we ever support this? We say that we're pro-family. You know, slavery just rips families apart. How could Christians ever support such a thing? And yet, and this is where we get to conscience and how we can play games, there were very, very godly people in the 19th century in our country and throughout other eras of history that have tried to find sophisticated arguments to support the ensl- people enslaving other human beings. So how could they do that? It's because we are part of our culture and part of the times in which we live. And the way to deal with that is not to cancel people from the past. It's to, it's to learn from their failures and to, and to humbly ask the question, look, if godly people, godly theologians and pastors even, like in our country, in the American South, in the 19th century, if they can like, you know, convince themselves and play games with their conscience that something so obviously wrong is right, then in what ways possibly could our own time and our own culture be influencing us. You know, if people from the past could kind of screen out parts of Scripture that they didn't want to deal with, if that could happen in the 19th century, you can better believe it can happen in the 21st century. And I'm telling you that the answer in any century is to get back to the Bible and what scripture truly teaches. And to humbly place yourself beneath, beneath the authority of God's word. And seek to truly, honestly understand what it is teaching. Because God's word will never lead you wrong in any area of life. And God's commands are for our good. They're given because he loves us. They are meant for our flourishing. So let's, let's humbly understand, you know, h- how much we can be influenced by our times and our own culture, and let's make sure that what we're doing is truly placing ourselves beneath the authority of God's word and seeking to be people of the book. Let's look at the latter part of verse 10 and verse 11. He says, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which was entrusted to me. Now, that term sound teaching or sound doctrine, the, the word sound there, it comes from the medical world. It, it means healthy, right? Healthy teaching, healthy doctrine. 
And he's saying here that that healthy doctrine, healthy teaching, when it's truly taken in, brings about spiritual health. And Paul is saying here that healthy teaching is gospel teaching, gospel-centered teaching. He says, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, that what? That conforms to the gospel. So healthy teaching is gospel-rich, gospel-centered. It, it always goes back to Jesus. It always lifts up Christ and his work, right? His work for us on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into glory, his coming again in victory. It centers on Jesus. This is what the church in Ephesus has gotten away from, and they need to get back to healthy, gospel-centered, gospel-rich teaching. I love this phrase here. That, that Paul uses, that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God. Wow, how beautiful is that? The gospel reveals the glory of God. Because what do we see in the gospel, right? We see God's holiness, how seriously he takes sin, so seriously that it was necessary for his son to go to the cross, we see, we see his, his wrath against evil and sin. We see his holiness, his righteousness. But what do we also see? We see his tender mercy. We see his compassion. We see his love for sinners and giving his son to die for sinners. So like all of these attributes of God that reveal his intrinsic glory, they come together in the gospel. The gospel reveals his glory I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and verses 4 through 6. He says, in their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. If you wanna know who God is in his glory, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. It's all there in the gospel, let's pray together. And so, Lord, we want to be a people who are constantly looking to Jesus. A people whose lives are being shaped and formed by the gospel. Lord, make us a gospel-centered people in our teaching, in our beliefs, in our speech. Lord, people who are sharing the gospel with those who don't yet know Christ, people who are talking about the glory of the gospel and gospel doctrine with other believers so that we encourage each other and we build each other up and all the while we're seeing more and more of who you are in your glory.
as we look at the face of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this goal message. Is love. Christ Let's is stand the and answer sing right for now. every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 